Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Uh, I mentioned last week on Easter Sunday that um, I couldn't do the previously planned sermon series sermon for that Sunday, nor could I do the one previous on Palm Sunday. And as I was sitting at my desk this week, I'm, I'm, you've, got, you've got three more Sundays in this month. I'll just jump back into what I'd previously planned. Guess what? We're just we're, we're scrapping the rest of the series. So um, I want to look at the ongoing story of the, the disciples that were on the road to Emmaus that we talked about last week. Remember the two, Cleopas, and it says the other disciple that was with him. Many people think it could have been his wife. Uh, there's scholarly resources and, and research out there that seems to prove that could be a very likely case it was his wife. Um, or it could have been just another friend who had come to follow Jesus that was from the same area of Emmaus and they were headed back home. Regardless, um, do you remember if you were here last week or those of you watching online, the end of that passage was the disciples, Cleopas and his cohort, were having a meal in Ephesus later on that evening as they welcomed Jesus to stay overnight and have a meal with them. And at the moment Jesus broke the bread for the meal and blessed it that evening, their eyes were open to who he was. He had been a stranger to them for seven miles along the way, from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Well, there's another part of that story. If you remember at the end of that passage last week, it says they got up right after that, it didn't sound like they had eaten much, if anything, at that point, and they hightailed it back seven miles into Jerusalem to give testimony to the other disciples. We're going to pick up that passage today. It's not going to be on your screen just yet, but Luke 24, starting with verse 35, is where we will be today, so it gives you a chance to turn in your Bibles before we get there. The question I want to ask you about, and the topic we're going to be discussing today in light of the ongoing story of of Jesus' resurrection is this. Have you ever doubted? Maybe not, let's not even just, have you ever doubted anything in your life? Not just Jesus or God or that there is a God in heaven, but have you ever doubted anything? Have you ever doubted uh, a friend or a spouse or your kids? Or have you ever doubted other relationships? Have you ever doubted your boss? Have you ever doubted any number of things? And, and it's not just people. You could have doubts in inanimate objects. Have you ever doubted your brakes were going to work? Or, you know, that your car was going to start up in the morning to get you from point A to point B? You see, to doubt is to be human. But initially, that wasn't the case. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see a time period in human history where doubt was never even a thing. But doubt came into play in Genesis 3, where we have the serpent 
who's tempting Eve to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He's causing, or trying to cause, I should say, Eve to doubt the message of God. God had said, don't eat of the tree of the fruit of knowledge, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat it, you will die. And so the serpent comes onto the scene in chapter 3 of Genesis, and he speaks to Eve. And he said, did God really say you shouldn't eat of any of the trees or any of the fruit of the trees? He's causing her to question, well, what did God really say? Well, she knew what God said through the testimony of Adam, who God gave that command to. And she said, no, 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 no. It's only the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil that we're not to eat, because when we eat it, then we'll die. And then he goes further. He says, oh, that's not true. See, when truth is called into question is when doubts start to arise. And doubts start to arise where our trust becomes misplaced. And so Eve is tempted not just to eat of the fruit. More importantly, Eve is tempted to doubt that God told her the truth. The very God who walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden, the very fullness of God's presence with them, face to face. They had not only all the evidence they could ever desire in having the fullness of God's presence, but now that presence is being called into question and that presence uh, is being, the, the, the trust is being called into question. Is he really trustworthy? Because here's the thing, Eve... God knows you will become like him, knowing both good and evil if you eat of this fruit, so he's trying to withhold something from you. Have you ever felt like God was trying to withhold something from you or not give you what you really needed in the time you needed it? You ever been tempted to believe that God wasn't trustworthy because things didn't work out according to your plan? You see, the disciples after the resurrection of Christ, still had trouble believing that Jesus was really standing there in front of them. We're going to look at that today. Even when you have unequivocal, complete, and honest truth standing in the... You, you have evidence beyond evidence that what is real is real. Have you ever doubted? Jesus would oftentimes say to the disciples, why do you doubt? Why do you doubt? Peter, come out and walk to me on the water. Get out of the boat. Come on, it's me. And he does until he starts to catch where he is and take into account all of his surroundings and realize, how am I doing this? More importantly, he gets his eyes off of Christ and onto what seems to be the problem, which are the waves and the wind, and how am I doing this? This isn't possible. This, how, nobody's ever walked on. How is this? And he got muddled, muddled in his doubts. 
Jesus, you remember, as he's calling out for help, Jesus reaches down and pulls him to safety. And what is Jesus' first words? Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? You see, there's a lot of doubt that happens. You may say you don't doubt God, but the reality is you doubt God when you doubt yourself and your abilities that God has given you. You say, I, who am I to think I should do this? I've been gifted by God to do this. I have these certain abilities and, and talents and all of these things, and, but I know what a miserable person I am. I know all my failures. I know all of these different things, so how could I even be put into service for God's use when I know all of this bad stuff about myself? And it's a lie of the enemy, the same one who stood in the garden on feet because his curse was to crawl on his belly, and looked at Eve and said, you know, God knows you'll be like him, knowing both good and evil if you eat this. He says the same things to us today, just in different words. Who are you to think you could do anything for God? I mean, look what a miserable person. Look at the mistakes you've made. You know, you did this, and you did that, and you did this, and all these things are stacked against you. God can't forgive you for that, so why are you going to even forgive yourself? Do you know why our churches oftentimes are powerless in our culture? Because we believe the lie that the enemy tells us on a regular basis. Do you know where insecurities come from? Insecurities come from the lie of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. If you are an insecure person and you wrestle with insecurities, it's because you've allowed the enemy to have a foothold in your life. C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters, one of my favorite books. It's a little hard to read because it's, it's not in the old English, but it is in the mid-20th century English of Great Britain, which is honestly very masterful. But if you read Screwtape Letters, you, you can't help but understand how powerful the imagery of Satan is and, the, and, and how Satan tempts us. Now, it's a fictional story written by C.S. Lewis, but it's based on his understanding of evil and Satan and how Satan can actually wield many different things to trip us up. And in, in, in here, he talks about doubt in this one section. Lewis' imaginative advice is a helpful reminder of the spiritual battle that you and I are in right now, even today. The enemy's goal is to dampen our faith, making it ineffective and just a small part of our life, if anything. Screw tape and wormwood are the main characters in screw tape letters. And wormwood, who is this aged, wise demon is instructing his nephew Screwtape, who is younger and less wise, on how to trip up his human being, this man. Screwtape is finally begin entrusted with tormenting this guy. This guy has come to faith in Jesus Christ, and Screwtape is beside himself. How is this possible? I basically lost the battle for this guy's soul. And Wormwood says, no, 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 no. You still got time. And listen to what he says. Let him, the Christian, the guy that you have, let him assume that the first ardors or excitement and passion that he has in his faith, in his conversion, that new excitement 
let him believe that that excitement might have been expected to last and ought to have lasted forever, and that his present dryness is equally a permanent condition. Some of you, many of you in this room, when you first made a commitment to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, you, you more often than not, most people get this surge of excitement, this freshness of new life, and this energy like, I have been forgiven of all my sins. I'm a new creation. And what screw tape is being instructed by Wormwood is when that excitement wears off, make him believe that that excitement was supposed to last forever, first off. And secondly, make him believe now that the dryness he's in will last forever. Get him discouraged. You remember last week? Get him discouraged to believe these lies. Having once got this misconception fixed in his mind, you may then proceed in various ways. Once you get him discouraged, because the newness of his faith has worn off and the dryness has now set in, once he gets there, you've got several things that, that you can use against him. It all depends on whether your man is of the desponding type who can be tempted to despair. So once you get him discouraged, can he then take the step further into despair? Like there's no hope. See, discouragement doesn't lack complete hope. It just, just lost some hope. But if you can get to despair, there is no hope. It's a tool of the enemy. Or if he's of the wishful thinking type, like, no, 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 it's got to get better who can be assured that all is well, make him doubt whether the first days of Christianity were not perhaps a little bit excessive. Oh, I was just immature at that point. I didn't know any better. Yeah, there was excitement, but that was because I didn't know any better. And get him to believe that dryness is what faith is all about. That going to a dry church, listening to a dry monotone preacher and having dry worship and all this, that that's just what it's about. You've made the conversion from this wild life of sin into this dry and boring life of Christianity. Get him to believe that. Moderation in all things. If you can once get him to the point of thinking that religion or Christianity is all very good up to a point you can make him feel quite happy about his own soul. A moderated Christianity is, a, is as good for us as no religion at all. This is Wormwood talking to screw tape about the demons in hell. If you can get him to believe that a mediocre faith is good, that's as good as no religion at all or no Christianity at all. Huh. And honestly, he says... It can be more amusing for us. That's what it says. According to John Ortberg, in his book, Faith and Doubt, writer Michael Novak says that doubt is not so much a dividing line that separates people into two different camps as it is a razor's edge that runs through every soul. He says many believers tend to think that Doubters are given over to meaninglessness and moral confusion and despair. Many doubters assume believers are non-thinking, dogmatic, judgmental moralizers. But the reality is we all have believing and doubting inside of us. 
For we all have the same contradictory information to work with in this broken and fallen world. But who is Jesus? He is truth. He is life. He is the way. And when we have Jesus, we have access to all truth and to all of life. Which should reason out doubt. We were not called to blind faith. I think I said this last week. And I've said this over and over. Uh, when, I, when I speak as a, as a, a halftime speaker at, um, at Upward during our season games, I'll speak all day for five minutes each time slot for each of our games. And the one that I typically do at the beginning of the season is on faith. And I'll use the definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And what is Hebrews 11, 1? Well, the New Living Translation puts it this, puts it this way. Faith is the assurance of things that we hope for, and it's the evidence of things we do not see. That is not blind faith. I remember growing up in the church, Church of God, as a matter of fact, in central Kentucky, and I was told, you are never to question God. That's a lie straight from the pit of hell, too. I think screw tape would have been instructed wisely by Wormwood to make them believe they should never ask God questions, even when they struggle with their faith. Because if you don't ask the tough questions of God who has the truth, you don't get the answers. Now, you're not going to get every answer this side of heaven. That is where faith comes into play. But we have evidence enough to believe that God is real and true and faithful. If it weren't so, would he have ever sent Jesus to die on our behalf? You see, God knew that through Christ, through him taking on human flesh, that that was the only way that he could fix this problem that started back in the garden in Genesis 3 where humans were tempted and gave in to the temptation to doubt God, rebel against God's standard. There was going to be no other human on the face of the earth born to man or wo- man and woman that would ever be able to fix the problem. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard of God. But God became man. You remember angel Gabriel? He comes to Mary, this young maiden, if you will, who seems to be pure of heart. And God had selected her. She was chosen above women to carry the creator of the world in her womb. Can you just pause for a minute and wrap your mind around that, which I'm sure wants to doubt that that's even possible. The angel comes and says, you will bear a son, and he will be called Jesus. But you won't bear a son through intercourse with a man. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. His birth will be human, but it will also be divine. So God takes on human flesh. He dwells among us, and he takes the sin of the world upon himself. It could only take God himself fixing the problem that we had made. And so at just the right time in human history, God took on human flesh and came in the form of a man 
took on human flesh and subjected himself to all the different temptations and frustrations this world has to offer to humanity. And he is the one who remained perfect. He never sinned. He never bowed his knee to worship Satan through actions or sinful behavior. Which is why when he was nailed to the cross, he could take the sin of the world upon himself as the perfect sacrifice. And it's why when he rose from the dead, he proved to us that not only could he take sin and judgment upon himself on the cross, but he could also deal with the problem of death. You see, when you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. So the curse of death had entered humanity and Jesus once and for all through his resurrection showed he even had power over the grave. And in his resurrected body, we meet up with Jesus yet again today as we look at Luke 24, starting with verse 35. Remember, Cleopas and his cohort had run back into Jerusalem to give testimony of what they had experienced with the risen Christ on the road to Emmaus. Verse 35, then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them and as they were, walk, as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, <laughs> I love this, Jesus himself suddenly was there standing among them. In one of the other gospels, I think it's John's gospel, it says they were behind locked doors. Same time period, same story. John gives us a different detail. They were behind locked doors. But now Jesus is suddenly standing in front of them. And I love the words he says, peace be with you. And that's a typical Jewish greeting in the day. It would be like saying shalom. That's the word, shalom. He could have said, hey, y'all. He could have said any number of things, but he gives them a common Hebrew greeting, shalom. But the whole group was startled and frightened. If you were behind locked doors and you're hearing the testimony of some of your friends who had experienced the risen Christ seven miles out of town, they've now run back in, they're giving their testimony, and now, boom, Jesus is right there behind locked doors with you. I think you'd be a little startled too. Those things don't happen on a regular basis. They were startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. And Jesus says these words, why are you frightened? Why are your hearts filled with doubt? You see what fear does to us? What does fear drive us to? Fear always drives to doubt. They were startled. That's a natural reaction, but they were frightened. You can say that's a natural reaction, and in some sense it probably is under different circumstances. But when you're standing in the presence of Jesus, he has now appeared before you to be frightened in a way that the world has fear is not what we are called to. We are called to be in holy reverence and awe, which is a holy fear of God. But this isn't the kind of fear they were having. They were scared. They were scared. Why are you filled with doubt? And then he goes, look at my hands and my feet. You can see that it's really me. Why does he say, look at my hands and feet? 
What had just happened three days before? He'd been nailed to the cross. In one of our Gospels, we hear about Thomas, who hadn't seen, which I'm going to quote in just a moment. He hadn't seen the risen Lord like some of the other disciples had. He says, I won't believe unless I see him face to face. This is the same setting. Thomas is in the upper room. He's behind locked doors. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It's me. It's me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost. Come on. Feel. Flesh and blood. It's me. He's not some disembodied spirit floating around. No, he has what's called a resurrected body. And this is one of the things that is not often taught in the church today. And it is a very confusing part. We are all going to be resurrected someday from the dead. Our bodies will be transformed. We will have flesh and blood bodies the way they were prior to the fall. And you may think that's unbiblical, but it's saturated in the New Testament teachings of Paul and the Gospels. Well, how is that? All right, so when our body goes in the grave, Brandon, what happens to us? Do we stay in the grave? It's a longer topic. It could be a series for a while, but let's suffice it to say, <clears throat> the body that was a shell, the broken body that was susceptible to wither and fade and die is put into the grave. At the second coming of Christ, there will be a resurrection of the dead. And no, it will not be like the night of the living dead from Evans City. All right? It's not zombies coming up out of the ground. Get that out of your mind, because that is not the zombie apocalypse you're looking for. It will be a resurrection of the transformed bodies of those that have died in Christ. Well, then what happens to the person before Christ returns? We have good evidence to believe based on the teachings of Scripture. Paul specifically, who says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There is a spirit that inhabits the shell of a body that in the temporary space of time until Christ returns goes to be with God in heaven. Goes to be with the Lord. What does he say to the thief on the cross or the criminal on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. Though your body be dead and thrown in a pit, <clears throat> you will be with me. So Jesus now standing before them in a resurrected body says, come and see, this is a real body. This is why Paul and many other writers say he is the first of the resurrection. When you read that language, that's what it's talking about. He is the first of the, well, what about Lazarus? No, he was resurrected from the dead into the same body he had that was still susceptible to death because he died again later on. And he's still in that tomb, buried somewhere, awaiting the day of Christ's return where he can be resurrected. So Jesus is now standing there, fully resurrected. His body's not in the grave. <clears throat> and we have... In Corinthians chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul tells us that Jesus appeared over 40 days' time. So the resurrected Jesus comes out of the grave that first Easter Sunday morning, and he sticks around for about a month and a half, 40 days. That's something we don't usually take into account when we're talking about these things. 
<clears throat> but he's with the disciples. He's meeting with different people. He's showing himself to his family, his friends, and all the other disciples to prove. You remember what I told you when I was with you? It's me. Come and feel and touch, just the way he did in Luke 24 in that upper room. <clears throat> he spends a month and a half going around showing and proving to people it truly is him. So that if there was any doubt, there should be no doubt now. If you doubted my teachings, don't doubt the physical presence of my very being in front of you. That saw me have the nails in my hands and in my feet and the spear thrust into my side and me breathe my last breath, me to be buried in that tomb. Don't doubt that it's me now. Look, there's evidence. And I love this next part. <clears throat> Still, they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. This seems like a contradictory statement. We'll talk about that in a moment. They stood there in disbelief, but they were filled with joy and wonder all at the same time. Have you ever felt that way? It's like, uh, how, what? Right? You experience something, you want to be true, you see it's true, but... You're like, you're rubbing your eyes. Is this really true? And then Jesus asked them, you guys got anything here to eat? I just, I love that statement. I mean, just is, is, is risen even in the flesh. This is why when people ask, there won't be any food in heaven and there won't be any, that. will we have bowel movements? I've had people ask me that. No, you, the things that people ask, but it's a legitimate question. We will eat. Really? It's a legitimate question to ask. Will we eat in heaven? Yes. I think Jesus was showing, it, it, there's a couple things here. Jesus wanted to show them that he was real, and so he's saying, touch me, now give me something to eat. I'll show you that I'm, it's not going to fall to the floor like you see in those ghostly movies, and it splats on the floor. You know what I'm saying? He legitimately, it's what they did. <laughs> they said, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it as they watched. I think that's so cool too, because they're like, it's weird to have somebody watch you eat, isn't it? Where they're just like. <laughs> but now imagine you've got all these disciples in an upper room experiencing you. They're in stunned disbelief. They're doubting. And you're just sitting there chowing down on a piece of fish. And he eats it while they watch. And then he says, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. You remember that, right? You remember <clears throat> the law of Moses? You remember the prophets that I talked to you about? You remember me telling you they all point to me? You remember me telling you I was going to die? Do you remember me telling you that don't worry, I'll come back? You remember all of that? Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written 
that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. And see, you're witnesses of all these things. You got to experience what the prophets had written about and what Moses had foreshadowed so many centuries before. You guys are the ones who got to see it with your own eyes. Thomas, come here, put your finger in the wound in my hand and feel the wound in my side. You're blessed because you see and believe. Blessed are those who don't see and yet still believe. See, we are among that great cloud of witnesses now, 2,000 years later, who though we struggle in this life, have faith in the one who rose from the grave, who we cannot touch or see the way they could. Because now Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father advocating on our behalf and he sent his Holy Spirit to be our guide and director and our comforter. And here's the point. The resurrection of Jesus is the cure to a downing heart. Faith doesn't come by sight is the first point. If faith came by sight, it wouldn't be faith. Do you understand? Again, faith is not blind. We are given evidence to believe. Just like we have evidence that there is wind and air when we see a tree swaying in the wind. We can't see it. This is something that uh, Billy Graham said. I can see the evidence of the wind, but I can't see the wind. You can see the evidence of your breath when your chest rises and falls as you breathe. And in the wintertime, you can see the steam off of your breath in the cold air. We have evidence beyond evidence to believe, and yet we still doubt. And no, we don't have the risen Christ in the flesh with us today, but we have something now that the Old Testament writers would have desired to have on a consistent basis, and that's the Holy Spirit. Amen. He is authority and power. He gives strength and courage where there is none. Biblical scholar Ken Hur rightly asks, is there room for doubt in our proclamation of faith? There certainly may be questions for which we strain for answers, but do not yet have them. Verse 41 in our passage today says that even after being provided with proof, they still did not believe, but they stood in joy and amazement. They stood there in disbelief, but in joy and amazement. This kind of doubt responds in sheer astoundment. Again, you ever had a surprise party for somebody? Or maybe a surprise party's been for you? And what does the surprise do to you for at least a brief moment? Shock. Shock. <gasps> you see these funniest home videos where people just fall over because they faint, because the shock is so great. Have you seen the military personnel coming home and they surprise their loved ones? And they stand there for a brief moment and just like they're frozen. I can't believe my eyes. This can't be real. And Jesus is saying, it is real. Believe. It's me. 
give me a piece of fish. I'm hungry. Just as much as faith isn't sight, seeing isn't always believing either. I'm just stunned at the people who can see so many things in front of them and still not believe with regard to faith. Now, granted, we live in a world right now with technology and CGI and now with the new AI technology that you can superimpose faces and voices and, and, you're, and you're like, well, am I really seeing what's true or not? Seeing isn't always believing. And so what do you do? See, in Jesus' day, there were still false prophets and false messiahs that would come. And he even said that. Listen, there are going to be people coming saying that they're me, saying that they're the Messiah. Don't believe them. They're, going to, they're probably going to perform some pretty cool signs and wonders, but keep in mind, they'll never raise from the grave like I did. The things you've seen me do, go and do. But don't believe everybody who comes in my name. Actually, don't believe anybody who comes saying and proclaiming that they are me. We have a lot of false messiahs today. You know, they don't claim to be God, but they, claim, they claim to be a type of God. A God unto themselves, if you will. See, this is the full ramification of a postmodern and secular culture in which we live, is that we don't have to have any God, but we have multiple gods at this point. We don't call them gods, but we worship the objects of our affection. I talked about this in my class this morning as I was teaching before service started. and I said anything that goes in that centralmost part where God should be becomes your object of worship. It could be money, it could be fame, it could be drugs, alcohol, it could be your family, your spouse. Now, granted, your spouse is meant to become one with you, but they aren't given the place of authority that only God has given in your life. Because if your spouse becomes your authoritarian and your God, guess what's going to happen? They're going to fail you every time because they're not God. And neither are you. This is why so many marriages fall apart and break up. So many relationships get broken and need reconciling is because we put people on the place that it is only reserved for God in our lives. And when they fail us, when they betray us, when they reject us, when they hurt us in any way, our world comes crashing down and we cut off. And then we say, I'll never do that again. I'll never trust again. I'll never... <clears throat> One of the reasons I love working as a campus pastor at Penn Christian Academy is because I get to see kids in the elementary stage all the way down to preschool that are yet untainted truly by the sins and the follies of this world. There's an innocence there. You can call it naivety, but I call it a childlikeness that God calls us to to where we see the eyes through a sense of wonder and amazement. And belief is not something that we lack at that age. And you just see this unadulterated love for people. Even though we train our kids to be wary of strangers, and it's rightly true in this society and in our world today, they, aren't, they don't come out that way. They have to be conditioned to that. 
in order to survive in a fallen world. The problem is you can become so conditioned to that that you become jaded and hardened, that you don't allow God to penetrate the depths of your heart, that you can become a childlike person of faith. Not childish. I've seen a lot of childish Christians, but childlike. Childishness is when somebody takes your toy and you kick and scream because they took your toy. And that happens in the church with adults a lot of times. They hurt my feelings. <clears throat> you know, I'll hurt their feelings back. I'll kick, I'll kick sand over their, I'll knock their sandcastle down. I'll do, you know, just stupid, silly stuff that, you know, happens in churches. We call it to be childlike, not childish. Seeing isn't always believing. In a quite rather lengthy quote from biblical scholar N.T. Wright, he explains that Luke's closing scene that we just read, for all its joy and excitement, it brings into focus for us the real problem of what, East, what happened at Easter. <clears throat> he says, what sort of body did Jesus have? How could it at the same time be solid and real, flesh and bones that you could touch and could eat fish, and demonstrate that he wasn't some kind of ghost, but also appear and disappear apparently at will whenever he wanted to, wherever he wanted to. Behind closed and locked doors, breaking bread, blessing, and then disappearing. How is that, how is that even possible? And there's where the doubt comes into play. Jesus' body was the stuff that heaven is made from. which is a body that's reserved for us who are in Christ, who will someday die and someday be resurrected. Unless Jesus comes in our lifetime, we are told that our bodies will be transformed as we meet him in the sky. N.T. Wright goes on to say, that I think is the hardest thing for us to grasp about the resurrection. How can he eat fish? How can he appear and disappear? What, how is that even a possibility, which then stirs doubts in our minds about the resurrection? It takes St. Paul a long chapter to thrash it out. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Read that and check it out when you get a chance. That's Paul's description of the resurrection and how we will also be resurrected like Christ. And still, many people misunderstand it. People often think that the resurrection simply means life after death or going to heaven, but the Jewish world of the first century, it meant an embodied life in God's new world, a life after life after death. Okay? If you like. But the new body which will be given at the end is not identical to the previous one. The one you have now is susceptible to bruises, to scratches, to scars, to pain, and you could die in this current body. But the resurrected body, which is still physical in nature, is never susceptible to those things. Never susceptible to pain, to sorrow, to all of those types of things. So we too will be like him if we remain in him and he in us. The Jews had this term for the grave. It was called Sheol. It's a term we would call hell today, but they didn't technically believe in hell. The Pharisees did, 
but the Sadducees and many of the other religious leaders in the Jewish, um, Jewish culture didn't. See, the Sadducees only adhered to the Genesis to Deuteronomy as being the Word of God. All the other writings of the Old Testament, they thought, yeah, they're good writings, but they're not the Word of God. And so they didn't believe in a resurrection. And this, this is why when, when you see Jesus, he's being confronted in the Gospels by religious leaders who don't believe in the resurrection. And they're trying to trip Jesus up on, okay, say this woman, her husband dies, and then she marries his brother, which was customary in that culture. Well, that brother dies, she marries the next brother. That brother dies, she marries the next brother. Whose wife will she be when she goes to heaven? Because they don't believe in heaven. They didn't believe in heaven. They didn't believe in life after death or resurrection. Who's, and you know what Jesus, you know what Jesus says? You won't be married or given to marriage in heaven. This is one of the top topics too that make a lot of people doubt. Well, if I'm not going to be married to my husband or my wife in heaven, then how, how will I know them? We can talk about this later. It's not a part of the sermon. Your relationship with your spouse will be so much more fulfilling as will all of your relationships there than they are here. I don't know how much more to explain it, but other than to say, take the joy of your relationship now, magnify that by a million. It, it far exceeds anything sexual of nature. Spirit, it, it far exceeds any joy that you could ever have this side of heaven. Your relationships there will boggle the mind at how pure, how holy, how awesome they can be you think you have best friends now think of what your best friends will be like then because there will be no separation whatsoever between anybody lastly the living word points to the written word to reveal the truth of the word so that people might believe let me say that again there's logic to this i promise the living word jesus points to the written word to reveal the truth of the word so that people might believe. Okay, the Bible. Jesus fulfilled every bit of that. Jesus lies at the cross section of all of human history, and the Bible, he stands at the foundation of the whole written word. He is what the Bible points to. And so he reveals that, which is why it's important that we know it. For when we begin to know the written word, we get closer and draw closer to the living word who is Christ, who sits at the right hand of the Father. Ken Hare goes on to write, not only did Jesus explain scripture to them, remember, he opened their minds to the scripture. It's like a light bulb went on and they're like, oh. And they have this rush of information that's more than information. It becomes transformation. And they see with eyes without blinders that what Jesus did and accomplished is what he had been talking about and what their, their rabbis and teachers had talked about as they were growing up in the faith. And it's what all of the writers of Scripture had pointed to. And as if one mighty rushing fountain of knowledge poured into them, they saw really for the first time. And it was too much to take in. 
He gave them the gift of discerning minds so that they could more readily understand the meaning of Scripture when they read it. It's a wonderful gift when God quickens the mind and enlightens the intellect so that understanding and application accompany the reading of the Word. I can't now read the Word and not be transformed by it because I make connections even now after so many years of studying it. Like, oh, I see how that, and there's still a revealing as if God's opening my mind to the reality of the truth of His Word. The longer I'm in it, the more I see it. And I think, how much more can I learn and see. I can learn and see for an eternity and not gather enough. That's why people that I talk to that say, I, I, I've read it through several times. I don't know how many more times I could read it. Read it until you soak it in and it transforms you. And then read it again. N.T. Wright concludes with this statement. The church is to be rooted in scripture and active in mission. Repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed to all nations. See, Jesus became the fulfillment of the calling God laid on Abraham's heart in Genesis chapter 12. Do you remember the calling of Abraham from the land of Ur? God comes to him and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make you, your descendants will be so large they'll outnumber the grains of sand on the earth and the stars in the sky. Go to a land I'll show you. And he says, listen, I will be with you. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all of the, I want you to hear this, in Genesis 12, 1, and three, 1 through 3, all of the nations of the world will be blessed by you. Do you catch the connection that now multiple centuries later, the Jewish people Jesus comes onto the scene through one of the descendants of David, through a virgin girl named Mary. And through his life, his death, and his resurrection, the promise was fulfilled in Abraham's calling through Christ. Because now in Christ, he says, I want you, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and where? all the world Matthew 28 go into all the world and baptize those or go into all the world and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father Son and Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and remember I'm with you I'm going to call our worship team forward to close us out this morning Kent Crockett, in his book, The 911 Handbook, writes, Doubt is not unbelief, but it is not faith either. It wavers between faith and unbelief, unable to make up its mind what it wants to be. It's like a hitchhiker who is thumbing a ride with one hand in one direction and thumbing a ride with the other hand in another direction. He wasn't sure which way he really wanted to go. It's in a similar vein that Michael Polanini brilliantly points out that we cannot doubt something without simultaneously trusting in something else. Let me say that again. 
You cannot doubt something without simultaneously trusting in something else. Eve began to doubt God, more importantly, her relationship with God, and at the same moment, she began to trust that what the serpent was telling her was true. So what does it take for us to trust and believe? For trust and belief to rule the heart of a person, it takes truth. And the truth is, Jesus actually rose from the dead, appeared before 500 witnesses, and proved that he was not only the long-awaited Messiah, but he was the Savior of the world. Through faith, we can believe. And though faith doesn't come by sight, it does come by trust, and not blind trust, as I mentioned earlier. The trust and the hope that every believer in Christ has comes from the evidence of the resurrected Jesus. Without this, there would be no Christianity, nor would there be a reason for any lasting hope or to have a church on any street corner in any place around the globe. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Let me close with words from the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth with regard to the resurrection of Christ. Just a few excerpts from chapter 15. Paul says, I passed on to you what was most important, what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and the 12, and after that he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at the same time, most of whom are still alive among those some have died. And then he was seen by James. You remember James, Jesus' half-brother? The one who doubted in the book of John that Jesus was truly the Messiah. He was seen by James and later by all the apostles. And further, Paul writes, For if there is no resurrection from the dead, then then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless. And your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the dead, but that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are to be more pitied than anyone else in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, he goes on to write. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Where does your faith lie? What do you trust in? even when the going gets tough and things aren't going your way. You see, the disciples had a belief that Jesus was going to build an earthly kingdom and would reign victorious over the Romans and any of the oppressors this side of heaven. But Jesus gave them a gift beyond the temporary and into the eternal. He gave them life everlasting, that knowing this life is going to end, there is an eternity beyond. There's a There's a a place where time never ends. 
And where will you be living? See, if you're a believer in Christ, you'll be dwelling with him in a place called heaven. You will have a resurrected body someday. You'll be able to celebrate at the banquet feast of the Father, eating broiled fish or Big Macs or whatever they have there. And it will be for the joy of celebrating each other in fellowship through food and laughter. Jesus came to give us life everlasting. My hope is that that's what you have. And if you have it and you've fallen on a time of discouragement and doubt because things aren't going your way, my hope is you'll understand and know if Christ is for you, who can ever be against you? No, you're not perfect, but he was for your sake. So now it behooves us to strive to be like him who gives us new life. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And, and yeah, we do struggle at times with questions that don't have answers and some that do. And Lord, we go reeling in our minds, like tumbling down the steps of life, not sure what to believe or which way is up. But God, remind us that you came and showed us the way because you are the way. That you, you came to bring us truth in a world of lies because you are the truth. And you came to bring us abundant life because you created all life. Forgive us where we question and doubt. When we slip into discouragement and even despair. Heal us, Father. Deliver us from all types of evil, even the evil of unforgiveness of ourselves. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Maine is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.